HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I am Kim Kessler with the Resident Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. And today, I also have joining me as a guest co-host, my good friend, Michael Melcher. Michael is a leading executive coach who also focuses, who focuses on how people and organizations grow and change, and that makes him the perfect person to be here to talk to us about food, since it's both about how people live and also how society tries to change for the better. Hi, Michael. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you here at Roberta's, and it's your first time here, right? Yeah, and I'm shocked at the number of people who are just sitting around eating pizza at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The pizza's that good. We'll have to... Uh, let you experience that. Or there's a lifestyle going on that I have not yet experienced that I need to, to tap your, into. Much to your dismay. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be talking today about going local and what it really takes to strengthen the regional food systems. And we're asking the question, if local food is so popular, why is farmland still being lost at an alarming rate? And I'm pleased to have joining us our guest for the day, someone who is a real expert in this, Rebecca Morgan. She is the executive director of the Center for Agricultural Development and Entrepreneurship, known as CADE, based in Oneonta, New York. CADE works to build a vibrant local food system in which locally owned agricultural businesses thrive and consumers are nourished by healthy and sustainably produced food. And she's joining us on the line from Oneonta or Delhi, New York, I think. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Kim. How are you? Good. Where are you today? I am in Oneonta. Fantastic. So before we dive into the important work that you do, we are one week uh we, wanted, we need to do a Thanksgiving recap because our show, we didn't have a show last week because it was on Thanksgiving. So one week later, and I want to ask you both how your Thanksgivings were. Uh, my Thanksgiving was extremely sedate. I did nothing for an entire week and was primarily in solitude and <laughs> made a homemade vegetarian pot pie and baked beans and felt smug about my 
selection of activities. Well, this, yeah, a lot of people would envy that, uh, especially especially the leading up to... Uh, Rebecca actually, I think, had the absolute opposite experience because I happened to talk to her in preparing for the show the day before Thanksgiving, and she was hosting, what, 30 guests, Rebecca? Is that right? Yes, I had the totally opposite experience. <laughs> we had over 30 people. We cooked um, three turkeys. Oh, my um, God. I, you know, I love Thanksgiving. I love just spending all that time making food and... Um, eating food with lots of family and lots of friends. So we had a great time. So ate I ate a lot of food, drank a lot of wine. I have to ask you, well, that sounds good. So maybe Michael can feel jealous now. Um, but I want to, I have to ask you both We, you know, we're always encouraged to not bring up politics at the Thanksgiving family table, which I have to say never happens in my family. We always inevitably talk about politics, but I, I think another issue that's very hard to avoid at the Thanksgiving table, especially these days, or at least for some of us is food politics. In this case, this year for me, uh, it was my mom hosting, but me, I brought the turkey, and she was very subtly, you know, not that appreciative of my insistence on bringing the turkey. Why not? Well, she was, I shouldn't, say she, I shouldn't say she wasn't appreciative, but she was concerned because me coming from the city to bring the turkey meant that she wasn't going to have the brining time. She's recently retired, and it was the first time she'd really learned about brining. She took a cooking class, and so she was upset that I was insisting on bringing this uh, locally sourced turkey that had had a good life for our Thanksgiving dinner and she kind of swears by Butterball and she was felt that the brining was especially important now that she was going to have this dry, <laughs> locally sourced turkey. You robbed so, her of her opportunity to artfully brine a tortured turkey. Yeah, she well, she ultimately got to brine, but not the amount of lead time that she really would have liked to. So we had this kind of fraught back and forth about it. And um, when I got there, uh, many of my relatives were teasing me about my million-dollar turkey, which, which she had, had been returning, referring to it as <laughs> behind my back. So um, I asked some other people about their experiences with food politics and got some interesting answers. But let me first ask you, have either of you ever had experiences around the family table with your food, your own personal food politics and how they come into play at Thanksgiving? Well, I would like to have more. I feel I, I don't travel anymore for Thanksgiving. I years ago decided people would have to come to me, but I hear about my family members Thanksgiving through phone calls where they will brag about various things they cooked and then send photos of same. And my younger sister who lives in Fairfax, Virginia, also brined um, a turkey in apple cider. Although, I don't mm -hmm. know, is that brining? Yeah, had, if it, shouldn't it be salty to brine? We had salt. It, my mother's formula was uh, apple juice. And, yeah, that's um, what it was, apple juice. And it was a lot even... of salty water. And okay. it actually was really good, I have to say. Maybe that was going around this year because yeah. it apparently made it down to Fairfax. Anyway, they were super proud of it, and I kind of wanted to get in their face a little bit, but I didn't because... My family members' approach to Thanksgiving and everything is Costco. Mm -hmm. So anything that could be purchased in large, cheap quantities is ideal. And they actually won't take the bait if I try to bait them on food policy issues. Mm -hmm. Like they, if I talk about animals being treated poorly or sustainability or planet stuff, they just kind of don't care and say, but it's really cheap. Right. Or that's too expensive. <laughs> or so-and-so doesn't like that. So we have to get them chicken fingers. Yeah, it's a time for consensus building. But I, I feel that, that the, one of the challenges with that is that a lot of um, 
people basically swallow their food. You know, a couple of friends told me that they had asked people to bring ingredients and they didn't bring the kind of ingredients that they wanted. So they just, you know, swallowed their pride and made the... I said lasa not kale, not regular. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like, why is it? Why does it always have to be the uh, people at the forefront of food politics who have to swallow their, their pride at the family table? I don't know, Rebecca, did you have any, any of those issues at, at your household? Um, not so much this year. Certainly in the past, my, my parents, my father, and my parents were uh, conventional dairy farmers. Um, now they're retired. But so in the past, my father was very much of the mindset that, um, you know, meat should be, you know, food should be cheap, you know, sort of that like children of the Depression era. Um, and my insistence on buying everything locally and sourcing locally and, and then, you know, sort of turning my career into that um, definitely made for many tense dinner table conversations when I would insist on buying, you know, local beef and he would insist that it wasn't as soft and, and marbled and fatty right. yeah. as, you know, conventional beef and, and whatnot. At this point, though, you know, my parents are retired. This was the first year that I really took over the Thanksgiving, so... Um, you know, I got to buy the turkeys, and, I, and all of our food was locally sourced. All of our potatoes and Brussels sprouts and whatnot for, was from right around our, our area within, you know, literally probably a 10-mile radius. Um, and not for any, you know, huge effort and intention of doing so, but really that's, that's just at this point there's, there's that accessibility. So it was sort of easy to do that. And, um, and because it was my table for the first time, um, I, didn't have to, I didn't have to go head-to-head um, with, with people that were upset about the food prices because I was the one paying the bill. So, right. um, and it, was all, it all worked out. Rebecca, were there any politics around wine selection, given your earlier comment? Did somebody create a <laughs> you know, blowout bring by bringing it on. A, Whatever a, people wanted to bring, I was, there was no, you know, just bring the wine. You wanted we don't turn any wine away. California, you, don't turn, you wanted to be from upstate New York, you know, anything other than blueberry wine, I'm fine you don't, with. So, uh, you don't uh, turn no, down all, the giant, all wine was good to go, for sure. No politics there. You don't turn down the giant box of Frangia? You know, you know, we're not that picky. <laughs> we, we use it all. We use it all. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, that's a, you're, that is actually a perfect segue to the substance of our discussion today because you're talking about sourcing all of your food from the region that, that we're going to focus on today, which is the Western Catskills. Um, and so, Rebecca, I want to turn to hearing more about your work. So, I mean, in short, basically, you know, we know that local sounds great. It has cachet. It, chefs love it. Schools are trying to source more. And, you know, the, the tension that you mentioned between and that I've mentioned between um, – the value around sourcing regional or local or depending on other values around how food is produced and the cost is one that really goes to the, to the substance of your work and how, um, how building regional food systems can support a more economically sustainable path for local producers to reach market. Um, so I wanted to ask you just a little bit to set the stage for us of what is the agricultural economy like in what the Western Catskills, what kinds of products are being produced, and uh, how, how are things for farmers? Well, primarily it's still a dairy region, um, although that is changing rapidly, you know, sort of annually, as it were, um, as dairy, uh, you know, dairy farmers are completely beholden to a federal milk pricing structure that doesn't give them control over their prices and fluctuates tremendously and regularly and whatnot. So, um, so as dairy farms continue to go out of business, there are new farms that are coming in um, and sort of replacing the dairy model. But by and large, it is still a dairy 
a dairy region. The new farms that are coming in tend to be more um, beef beef farmers, um, and within that there's a significant number of grass-based beef farmers that are really trying to both access that market niche as well as, you know, understanding grass-based beef production as sort of a closed-loop system. So so that really works on a lot of different levels for them. There are increasing um, diverse rotational livestock operations, so small farms that have, you know, sheep and some beef cows and some poultry and some pigs and, you know, are just trying to, um, trying to make the most out of each specific sector or enterprise on their farm. Um, and then there are increasingly vegetable producers coming into the area, but, you know, again, in the western Catskills, we're in the foothills, and it's very, uh, our, our pasture is superior here, and the grass is great and grows and is green and is, you know, uh, the, the pasture is a great source of forage for the animals, but we do not have huge swatches of flat land where it's easy to really um, cultivate produce. So there are small-scale producers up here, but not a lot of um, large-scale producers. But so, and, and then, of course, there's you know, a significant number of um, maple businesses and um, some honey. So that's, that's sort of the, 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 the overview. And how has the growing interest, I mean, we know that local and organic foods have taken a larger role, a larger part of the market share, um, and, in, and there's an increasing interest in them. How has that impacted farms in that region? Have, have, has, have they been able to tap into that interest? Um, well, again, it's it, the local food movement, you know, as it were, has a significant impact on this region. But um, again, you sort of have to segregate the dairy producers out of that because they're not, unless the dairy producers are engaged in value-added production and are um, allocating a certain percentage of their bulk tank toward cheese or butter or yogurt or whatnot. Um, in general, they're just shipping their market out into this federally regulated, um, very low-priced market where they don't really have control. So the local food movement um, outside of the value-added dairy product really doesn't have a huge impact on the regional dairy farmers. However, on the other farmers, um, it has a very significant impact. Um, you know, for one thing, there's the huge New York City market that if you can successfully access as an upstate producer, um, it increases your market, your farm profitability, um, you know, often to the point of some, some people sort of make it or break it whether or not they're able to access the New York City market. Um, and a good deal of our efforts here at Cade are to, you know, keep sort of developing the efficient mechanisms for Catskill producers to get into the New York City market. Um, and we do consider ourselves in the New York City local food shed, you know, on a side note to that, we are literally in the New York City watershed. The west of Hudson reservoirs that feed New York City's water supply are located in our counties. Um, and so the transitioning, the transition from focusing solely on New York City's watershed to include the New York City food shed is one that I think we're slow to make, but we're getting there. And, and that, that traction for understanding this region as part of the New York City food shed, I think, will, ha will um, have a greater impact for the local food movement on the local producers. Um, can I just ask a follow-up question quickly to make sure I understand something? So you were talking about the existing dairy farms, and what I understood from what you said is that uh, they produce this kind of commodity, just milk, that is then shipped off into the wider world where it's uh, determined by f federal law and existing market forces, and those dairy farmers are not currently making other types of products like cheese and butter and so forth? 
Um, well, the ones that are, well, so, so many of them are not, correct. I would say the, major, the vast majority of the dairy farmers in this region um, are not doing value-added production. You know, they're, they're making milk and they're shipping the fluid and milk. The milk that comes every other day to the farm, picks up the milk, takes it away. They control neither the prices nor the marketing nor the branding. It's, you know, they just sort and of it, ship it into a federal co-op. Is that their um, choice or... Are they just well? Kind of so increasingly, farmers are um, you know they're seeing that the, that a, a couple of the dairy farms that have negotiated um, contracts with the the, the their um, milk supply the, with the the people that come and pick up their milk, they are segregating a certain percentage of their bulk tank um, to do their own value added production, whether they're bottling their own milk or making cheese or making yogurt and they're they're trying to access um that they're trying to access the market in that direct marketing realm um by ha- but you know that adds this entirely other component to farming so then not only are they farmers but then they are marketers and they're product developers and they're branders and they're you know they're sort of salespeople in a different way and and so it's sort of adding this entirely new job to um in addition to being a farmer so for the farmers that have been able to do that and there are some success stories for sure that uh farmers that are able to sort of take a percentage of their bulk tank and dedicate it to value-added products and get those products into the local and new york city markets um those farmers definitely have an increase in their farm profitability um but again that that process it includes taking on an entirely different career Skill in addition set, to being right. a farmer. You know, some of some of Michael, some of Michael can help them with that. Yeah, you can. We'll develop new yeah, competencies. Right. Well, they're, they're kind of changing their whole identity. It's not simply adding a product no, extension. Right. A whole different life. And and dairy farmers, from what I've read about this, they it's not like they have not like they're wallowing in spare time, right, Rebecca. Um, I mean, you know, with, yes. Right. So this is the, these are the farmers that, you know, they wake up really early in the morning and they milk cows. I mean, they work yeah. literally from before the sun comes up until after the sun goes right, down and the right, cows right. have to be milked and the cows have to be fed and the manure has to be taken out of the barn and the food has to be brought into the barn. And, yeah, you know, it doesn't leave a lot of time for business planning. Staying on top of farm management is, is more than a 24-hour-a-day job. Yeah. So, so adding I, I product development you... and marketing on top of that um, requires bringing new and additional people into your farm business, and some farms just frankly have neither the time nor money to allocate toward that, that, you know, extension of their dairy farm. Business. So I think it's time for uh, we can take a, a quick break, but I have one tiny follow up question on that. People, we know that yogurt has become this huge deal in New York State, and I, the governor declared it our state food, I think. Um, and Chobani is based in upstate New York. Uh, so I gather, though, from what you're saying, I just want to, if you can confirm, that that doesn't impact dairy farmers. Well, you know, a couple points on that. One is that Chobani, while, while obviously touted as New York's, you know, success yogurt story, um, Chobani buys milk from farmers at a lower cost then farmers um, would sell their milk into the federal milk market because it's a different, you need a different grade of milk for yogurt than you do for fluid milk on the shelves. So if you're turning milk into, into yogurt, it can be at um, a slightly subpar grade than milk that is just going into, um, you know, becoming a, a liquid product on the shelves because you're, you're going through another level of um, processing. Does it make so it Chibani a good thing? Actually, for local far- Does it make it a good thing for local farmers that... 
Well, the so the local farmers thing. that are selling into Giovanni are, are um, you know, they were very, there was a huge uh, degree of excitement that Giovanni was um, going to source locally and whatnot. Um, but then the farmers that have gotten into those contracts with Giovanni are, are frequently dissatisfied because they are, in fact, receiving even a lower price than they would be if they were just shipping off to um, a federal co you know, one of the milk co-ops that just comes and takes their, their milk from there. Uh, farm, so it's not. It hasn't actually translated into higher farm profit on any level. Um, and then, you know, I, I would argue that probably the local yogurt uh, product might be reaching saturation in New York State. I'm not encouraging dairy farmers to develop new yogurt products. I think that there are other more exciting value-added products to develop. Okay, great. Thanks. So we'll take a short break, and we'll come back and hear about some of the other types of farms that you're working with. You are listening to Rain Dance by Feral. National Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Hosting After the Jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I, I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's, it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Hey, what's up? This is John Norris, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. Hi, everyone, and we're back. Um, and Rebecca, I want to continue our discussion about how your organization, CAID, is helping farmers in the Western Catskills. So previously you mentioned uh, helping farmers who try to reach the New York City market, and I know you have one exciting project that has been successful in doing that and is in the process of scaling up. So can you tell us about your food hub work with Lucky Dog Farm? Sure. So, so the, um, obviously food hubs have been, you know, all over. Um, everybody's been getting, trying to get large-scale funding for food hubs and whatnot, and we took a very different approach um, in this region, which was basically 
we, there was one farmer who was driving a refrigerated truck to New York City once a week, and the goal was just to grow from the bottom up. So that the initial goal was just to pack that truck, which um, it had the room for two or three additional pallets at first, um, and then get get that food into the city, and then add an additional truck and build the cold storage um, as needed. So so really growing it from the ground up instead of trying to start with securing one of these multi-million dollar grants from the state um, and whatnot, and then trying to then figure out how to support the operation of a food hub, and that's often where food hubs fail. So this has been a very successful model to date, which is that uh, um, Richard Giles, who is the owner of Lucky Dog Farm, which is an organic, it's the largest organic vegetable farm in our region. And in, I know that in Delaware they, County. some people might be familiar with them because they do sell at green markets in the city, but I'm assuming that the uh, products that are on the are, that are part of the hub do not necessarily don't get sold at green market, which is producer only, but are being delivered right. no, to they different get, points. So in the what city. Richard is doing with the hub is that he is bringing the product down and then making drop offs prior to the green markets. So he'll go down on a Thursday and he will drop off at primarily restaurants. So it's it's really primarily um, restaurants at this point and and some sort of high end markets. I mean I, I believe that there's some drop off at Italy. There might be some drop off at. Um, and, well, how do those and how do those connections get made? Do the farmers have to go out and make those connections themselves, or is that well, something? Well, so Kate's really, it's, it's a these are this is just the the hub is leveraging Richard's um, excellent product over the years. So Richard is is somebody who has um, has been reaching out to restaurants for years and years and years and been delivering um, consistently a very high quality product. So at first, you know, and then when he was talking to the restaurants, they were saying, you know, well, we love your produce, but we're also interested in meat, and we're also interested in eggs, and we'd also like, you know, fresh chicken, and we, you know, and um, and so Richard was able to say, you know, look, well, you trust me, you know that I have these superior standards of, of excellence when it comes to local food, and um, so I will help source that. So Richard really essentially came to Cade and said, you know, look, in addition to doing my own farm and my own gig, is there any way that Cade supports could support um, really developing a larger hub network so that I'm not the one that's reaching out to all the producers, but there's a more facilitated and coordinated effort. So that's sort of where Kate stepped in, and then we realized that, okay, there is a huge amount of interest from producers, and some of them were people that were already going to the city once a week, but frankly, you know, that's exhausting. And, uh, you know, I used to do that for for a couple years which was like schlep to the city, you spend, you know, two days harvesting, you schlep to the city, you leave at three in the morning, you get home at midnight, you know, it takes days to recover, and then you have to get right back in the cycle. So it's, I feel uh, it's a fairly exhausting... What's that? I feel exhausted even coming to Brooklyn. Well, from so. the Upper West Side, yeah, it's, it's kind big, of comparable. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of comparable <laughs> right. to a farmer. It's all exhausting. <laughs> There's a lot of cultural um, yep. challenges. Right, right. But so at any rate, it just felt like, okay, well, here's this great opportunity to leverage, the, to, to build on to the fact that Richard is already um, making this schlep. He already has these connections, and, um, and then Cade can sort of step in, and we were able to receive a USDA grant to, um, to purchase a pallet jack, which helps, you know, loading when, the, when it's the hub delivery day. Um, we also were able to expand the cold storage because now there are enough producers involved where we need to um, have more room prior to loading the truck. So, and, and all the of this comes really from, to, I mean, what's to, so interesting about what you're saying, I think, is that it really comes from 
personal networks um, and connections and that, you know, that Richard himself was able to be the genesis of this says something, I think, powerful about how change is made. Uh, But I want to ask you about some of actually the role of policy, because you just touched on the USDA grant that you got, which comes out of uh, the local food promotion program, or at least what was formerly called the local food promotion program that I think your grant came from. Um, And I know that some of your other work has also been driven by recent policy changes in with regard to the New York State brewery law. So talk about how that has influenced the work that you're doing and how you're trying to be part of this shift towards more locally grown hops in New York State. Okay, so basically the farm brewery legislation um, uses tax incentives for New York State brewers to use New York State produced hops. So this is a great example of, of how policy really changes things on the ground. And once the legislation was in, pre- in place, there was really significant growth in, um, in, the, in the number of people that were interested in producing hops as well as the growth of um, small breweries that were interested in sourcing hops. So just, you know, as... Um, you know, as an example, in, in 2011, there was a 13% growth by volume of the craft beer industry. Um, by 2012, there was a 15% growth by volume. Um, you know, and at least 14 new farm breweries um, are likely to open in New York State based on, um, you know, that, that these are just in, informal sort of networking that we're aware of. Who even knows about all the others? And just within our small region alone, I can, you know, name off the top of my head 12 people that are starting small-scale hops yards um, as a way to sort of access this new demand. So this is a really interesting case where legislation really incentivized both, you know, production, uh, both demand and supply. And, and, this, was, and um, this was a New York State tax law? That was the farm brewery law. So it provides a tax. It's a which is a New York law, right? By if, for breweries if they are sourcing right. um, New York State hops. I make the point because um, in social change movements and people that are affiliated with those things, the you know the the popular line, almost a cliche but still true, is think globally, act locally. But sometimes it's good to think globally and locally, and then act Albany. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. with one very specific change in the state tax code, all of a sudden you can open up not just the existing market, but the potential for new people to come in who may not have even thought of it before. Right. The other thing I think that the brewery example demonstrates is a really interesting model for where the food system could go with this whole idea of decentralization and this emphasis on diversity. And I always think of if you could have more of that, you know, like all of us can walk into any supermarket all across the country and see Tostitos salsa, which is always the example that I give when I think of, of this, which in my opinion is not the best salsa. And wouldn't it be great if you could walk in and see all of these different varieties of salsa that was being made in your area and that could go on and on to all kinds of processed products and um, I think is one of the is one of the outcomes that would come from a more decentralized, you know, less consolidated food system in general. So the brewery example and the flourishing of that and a policy to actually support that uh, is a really interesting outcome. And you're, you're doing it by changing the economic incentives, right? Because one reason there is centralization is that on some level there's an economic sense behind it, but by altering, in this case, the tax code, um, you're creating a different set of incentives that will lead to more diversification. So, Rebecca, I want to hear from you also. You know, what other types of opportunity, major opportunities, do you see that could follow along that path that would impact your region? In terms of uh, policies that could change 
the food system yeah, specifically oppor- or? Yeah, opportunity areas. I know you had talked about work uh, potentially relating to dairy cows and how we might be able to source more of those in New York City as meat or other, oh, other the, major the, changes. So, so yeah, there are a couple of initiatives that I think if they got some traction um, could really take off. And one is this idea of um, utilizing called cows for uh, ground beef in schools. So called cows are, are cows that are taken out of your herd um, primarily because they are uh, decreasing in their milk production. So it's taken out of a dairy herd. Um, so often it's it's just a question of, you know, cows go through certain cycles of a certain number of cycles of lactation, and then after a certain number of cycles, they produce less milk after, after they're bred back each time. So, and sometimes they have a harder time being bred back. So those cows are typically called from the herd. They're often very healthy cows. They, um, they're often coming from small family farms that don't have high usage of um, antibiotics on their farm, that don't employ growth hormone techniques on their farm. So th- these are, you know, high-quality, uh, potentially meat um, proteins for, that could be used for schools. Um, but what's, what's the obstacle here is that there just aren't the mechanisms in place yet. So it, right now, most of the cold dairy cows go to Pennsylvania, from New York State, go to Pennsylvania to be processed and then just enter the commodity beef market, however that plays out. And um, so basically so what's missing sometimes is Sometimes that's frozen infras- patties, sometimes that's dog food. I mean, it sort of depends on what auction house is, is purchasing and where the processing And that's place. partially because there's no infrastructure in New York State to separately process and market and brand them? Is that what... Well, because there hasn't been this initiative. So if, if the cows were, if the cows were, uh, they, if they stayed in New York State and they went to New York State processing facilities and they were aggregated and they were turned into ground beef and they were aggregated at, um, you know, at the processing facilities and then they were able to utilize, um, you know, utilize some of the warehouses and the cold storage um, warehouses that school food products generally utilize, and then they could enter the school cafeterias through a very efficient system. But putting all of that in place requires getting a lot of people on board, and it would increase um, the processing facilities in New York State, so it would add jobs, it would increase the number of um, it would increase the farm profitability to the farmer because that cow would get a higher price than it's currently getting at the auction house. Um, so there it would have, and it would be able to, you know, by one estimation, all of the cold dairy cows in New York State would be able to feed all of the, um, all of the New York City cafeterias for the public school system in New York City. So there would be a real closed loop there, which would be incredibly exciting. Add jobs. New York City has local New York State um, hormone-free beef and antibiotic-free beef in their lunches, which is a higher quality than they currently have. Right. And, um, and there so would be some real economic development as a result of agriculture, which is what is desperately needed in upstate New York. So it's win-win-win like all over the place, yeah, but identifying and putting in place all of those Potential for a virtuous mechanisms. cycle there. A potential, potential for a virtuous cycle there. Um, right. So that's uh, an exciting opportunity. Maybe the first step is just raising awareness about it. So I'm glad you're able to share it with us. But I, I think um, we have just a little bit of time left. And I actually want to turn to you. And I know that you have had an interesting career that has spanned from both international development to working in this local perspective. Can you share how that has impacted your view and what any of the similarities you've seen in working both abroad and here on food system challenges? 
Well, I would say, you know, here my relationship to the food system work is, um, I'm so much more intimate with it. It's from whence and whither I hearken. You know, I grew up on a dairy farm in this region, and, and so I'm really, I'm, I'm literally working with people um, that I knew as a child that are still in the, in the farming world. Um, but, you know, there's, it, not in the same degree, obviously, as Central America, but there, which is where I spend uh, most of my international work, but there's a very high degree of poverty. Um, in upstate New York, and you know, it's rural poverty is is um, very difficult to tackle, and you have a lot of these sort of um, what feels like dying small rural towns, and there's a lot of local economic development focus on trying to get you know, let's get nanotechnology and let's try to I- invite industry and let's try to in- incentivize you know large scale production to come here but but really what do we have around these rural towns well we have land and we have people that have farming skill sets and we have a you know crumbling but still existent farm service sector and tractor supply stores and feed supply stores and and ag service society or sectors so it really feels like um, there's huge momentum to be gained from developing agriculturally um, developing an e- a robust economic system based on sustainable agriculture, which I, and I feel like we're in the right direction. But then on the flip side of that, um, you know, and my, I'm constantly talking to people, well, no, the people, a lot of the local people uh, do not, cannot afford to or do not choose to um, spend their money on locally produced food. So we have to access the New York City market, which brings new opportunities to the table, but it's also this enormous gap in the food system, which is that, you know, there's so much traction in the farm and food system, and you go to Brooklyn and every other restaurant is a farm-to-table restaurant and whatnot, but farmers are struggling. Farmers are the poor rural population. Um, so it's not like that, that traction is, and that momentum is feeding back to the farms. Right. So the, there's a lot of disconnect all over the place, um, but there are certainly to analogies and, to and the, work the that... international economic development issues. Yeah, so a lot of work ahead, and it's the work that your organization is focused on, and that's Rebecca Morgan. She's the executive director of the Center for Agricultural Development and Entrepreneurship. Rebecca, I want to thank you so much for joining today and sharing those insights, and good luck with your continued work on those efforts. And to everyone else, thank thanks you. for listening to Eating Matters on the Heritage Radio Network. I want to thank Michael for coming in and joining today. The show is available as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher, where you can also leave comments. I'd love to hear your feedback. And I'm Kim Kessler, signing off. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.